happy Saturday. That's right. We made it through another week. Oh, what a fantastic week it was as we get through to August. When did it become August? It seems like it was just March yesterday. It seems like the whole world paused on March 12th or March 13th, somewhere in there. And uh, we haven't really woken up since, but we're making our way through August and we have another edition of the Sports Kiki podcast. It is episode number 26. My name is Alex Reamer. As always, you can find the show Wherever you can find your favorite Outsports podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, we are there, ready to be consumed for your listening pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, We have a great interview for you this week with somebody who is much smarter than I am, so I won't bloviate and use up all the oxygen. We'll get to Richard Gibbs Johnson momentarily. He's an attorney and college athlete rights advocate. Uh, he's very well accomplished and well known in that space. You may recall the court case Oliver v. NCAA, which established college athletes' right to, rights uh, to counsel. Uh, Richard Gibbs Johnson was the uh, plaintiff's counsel in that landmark case. So we had Richard on the show this week to talk about the Pac-12 We Are United campaign, the Big Ten player uh, group as well that is also demanding changes with the Big Ten conference. Of course, one of the biggest debates roiling at the intersection between sports and the coronavirus continues to be not just fall college sports, but but fall college football in particular. Will it happen this year? How will it happen this year? This year, uh, this week, we saw UConn announce that they are canceling their 2020 fall season. Division two and Division three have already suspended championship games for their fall sports. The Ivy League canceled all fall sports, it seems like, a while ago. Uh, but the Power Five conferences, as we talk about with Richard, are still gearing up to go to, yes, a slightly altered season, and all on all uh, conference executives are pretty transparent about the fact that they may have to stop, but... It does seem like they're going to try, and we get into all the ethical and moral questions about that. And of course, here at OutSports, we cover college sports regularly. We call it, we cover out LGBT athletes regularly, uh, including some college football and basketball players who come out, and of course, so many in the quote-unquote non-revenue sports. Uh, and they're impacted by all of this too, the impact that coronavirus is having on college athletic departments and their revenue. So a great conversation with, again, somebody uh, who is much smarter than I am, Richard Gibbs Johnson. So uh, we'll get to him momentarily. But before we do that... Uh, as the deputy managing editor of this fine website, this fine publication, Out Sports, um, I do feel like I should issue a full-throated defense of our managing editor, Don Ennis, who does a fantastic job. She is amazing, and this week she published uh, the names of the more than 300 cisgender women athletes who signed a letter uh, supporting Idaho's trans athletes ban uh, we have a ruling on that expected to come this upcoming week. Uh, Martina Navratilova is at the top of the list, uh, and Don Ennis was able to obtain the list. As the great journalist she is, she published it on Outsports. We are proud to have the story. Uh, of course, whenever you write about these matters, it generates a lot of outrage, but this time, uh, people took it much too far, threatening Don on social media, uh, harassing her, saying that she was doxing the people who signed this letter when she wasn't doing anything of the like. She was just publishing the names and the home states of the athletes who signed this letter, information that is all publicly available, names and where they are. So it's, it's not doxing at all. 
uh, and it's good journalism, and it's journalism that we're proud to support at Out Sports. And I know we've talked about this quite a bit through 26 episodes on the show, but it is just so amazing to me how people oppose something like trans inclusion in sports, something that is completely harmless, as former Team USA women's soccer player uh, Lori Lindsay wrote in a passionate op-ed this week in the Indie Star. Uh, it doesn't do harm to anybody. They are not uh, transitioning so they can win track and field championships. I can most certainly assure you that. Uh, these kids are some of those vulnerable in our society. They are bullied. They are harassed at way higher rates than their cisgender peers. Um, and playing sports is really a saving grace for so many of them. Um, and it just is shameful that so many are so passionate about taking that away. So we continue to follow that story and wanted to congratulate Don Ennis on a great story in, in the kind of journalism we are proud to produce at Out Sports. So if you have not read that piece, please do. It's good journalism. And coming up next, we have a good interview, as I said, with Richard Gibbs Johnson, college athlete rights advocate, to talk about all these issues. And we even get into a little bit of the media's coverage of the coronavirus, which, uh, you know, it's a topic that I could talk about all day long. So it's Sports Kiki, episode 26. Thanks, as always, for listening. And welcome back to the show, the Sports Kiki podcast on the phone line now. We've just spoken for a couple of minutes before pressing record. We're already friends. He says I can call him. Uh, we have attorney uh, Rick Johnson on the phone. He is the president. I'm going to make this sound very fancy now. Of Richard G. Johnson Company. LPA, but as you say, it's me, myself, and I. Uh, but he's on the show today because he's a college athlete's rights advocate who's list, who's written about all these issues extensively, and uh, certainly there's a lot to talk about in that field this week. Uh, Rick, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. It's uh, We haven't talked about this issue yet since we launched the show months ago, so I'm really looking forward getting into it. I think it's the biggest story in sports this week. Um, and so let's start with the Pac-12 players. More than a dozen of them have started the We Are United campaign. They say they are threatening to sit out the season if a list of their demands aren't met, which range from COVID health and safety precautions to a pledge to protect all sports for colleges, ending racial injustice in college athletics, fair market pay they're bringing up as well. Um, what are some of the bigger things they're asking, Rick? And as someone who's written extensively about this and studied these issues for so long, what are your overall thoughts on this movement? Well, I don't think it's a movement. I, I think it's a news story. Uh, when you have 12 okay. or 13 young men signing their name to something, uh, that's fine. Uh, that's better than one. There's 1,020 uh, FBS, or I'm not actually football players in uh, Pac-12. So um, you know the idea that that uh, 13 makes a difference. If you have 511 uh, putting their name out there, not saying they're on a group chat or something, but actually putting their name out there, signing, saying I commit to this. They get up to 511, then I'll be impressed. Um, less than that, I'm not impressed at all. And and the ADs and the, and the management of the schools and the athletic departments, they think the same thing. I mean, it, you know, there's always people who will, uh, you know, want more. Um, and, you know, how the, the, the lawsuits have been going on since 09, um, you know, they, the, the schools shrug their shoulders at this. Um, and 
you can ask for whatever you want. The Pac-12 has already said you can opt out of the season and keep your grants and aid. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I I think most of the Pac-12 is kind of skeptical as to whether they're, gonna, they're even going to play. So you, you start making threats of we're going to withhold labor. There may not be any teams right. to withhold the labor from. Uh, so, like, you know, if, if you wanted to achieve this kind of scale of change, you don't do it when the other side is like, shit, we might not even be playing. Uh, you, you you do it in a good year where they are going to bring in, you know, X hundreds of millions slash billions of dollars in, in revenue and say you'll shut them down. And then you stage a walkout. Uh, that's what gets their attention. But but right now, they're, they don't even know if they're going forward. Um, and, and every one of these kids, you know, you know, who claims to say they're going to, uh, you know, sit out unless they get this, the schools have already said, eh, if you want to sit out for safety reasons, you can. So what, you know, if, if, if you're any of the 12 Pac-12 teams, what do you say to that other than, eh, and that, that's kind of my reaction, eh? <laughs> Boy, awfully cynical. Damn, I thought we were going to have a, 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 a turning point moment here in uh, college athletes' rights, Rick. Well, you know, keep in mind, I I was the the first and still the only lawyer to get a college athlete to trial against the NCA individually, and yeah. that was and that went to trial in 2009. Uh, we're the first to get to trial, first to win, and the only ones to get paid. Um, you know, they paid us three three quarters of a million dollars. Nobody's been paid squat besides us, and since then there's been two class actions. They ostensibly won, and they got, you know, one, one uh, the O'Bannon group got 5000 to 10000 and cost of attendance uh, extras. And, uh, you know, it's yet to be seen what the Alston versus NCAA plaintiffs will get. Um, but uh, when, when, when you look at challenges to the, the college sports infrastructure, it, it's exceptionally hard and, uh, and, you know, you you have very organized corporate interests masquerading as nonprofits up against a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds. And people think, you know, unionization efforts are easy or whatever. If you think about your traditional union, you know, let's say in an auto plant. So you've got people who would go in at 18 and work 40 years uh, to mid to late 50s and retire. And you'd have shop managers and union managers and whatever. And you'd have a system that self-perpetuated the union. In, in, a, <clears throat> in, in a college football situation, for example, when, when they tried to organize Northwestern, you, you, you've got a turnover of 25% of your players every year. Right. So, so just trying to maintain – so if, if they would have recognized a union and, and if they would have allowed the vote to become public, um, you know, even if you – you know, you expended because they had the the United Auto Workers were behind that. They were funding it and 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 doing the work. But assuming you got a union organized, 25% of your members are leaking out every year. And these are young people who, you know, I was young once. <laughs> I love young people, but you know, the 18 to 22 year old crowd has different priorities and they have a different timeline. Whereas if, if in a traditional union structure, you know, you're in the media. So think about a, 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 a 
a writer's union right. where you're, you're spending 25 to 35 years in your career, your time perspective for that union and what you want to get out of it is, is significant. But, but for a college player, it's so short. Um, and there, it's so easy to divide the players um, because there's a huge talent differential even as you get yeah. to, the, to the top teams. So th- these are very hard things to do. And, and so when I see these pronouncements and I see, you know, the National College Players Association and, you know, it's Ramogi Huma. They're, they're no members of the National College Players Association, but if you go on their website, they'll say they have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of members. It's not even a member organization. You can't join it. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk and there's very little action because college players aren't organized and uh, and no you know other than the unionization effort at uh, Northwestern there's been very few efforts to try to organize the players and you know you know it was a couple of years ago they had the wristbands and you know you had a sense of kind of more like the black lives matter movement where it's not necessarily organized it's more right, of a very, team yeah, right. So, right. so so i think it's easier in a younger population to get to maybe change attitudes and get people thinking about these things. But there's a big, there's a big leap between uh, having an affinity or, you know, a group representation of a feeling versus actually having power. Um, And, and you're seeing, you know, the black lives matter movement grows up. You're seeing a lot of growing pains and you see that in Portland, you see that other places where, not having a strong organizational structure hurts it when it wants to demonstrate. Well, I mean, but there can be turning points, right? I mean, that nationwide support for Black Lives Matter has increased quite a bit the last couple months since the George Floyd killing. And you're seeing across the country cities pledging to reallocate funds from police departments to social programs. So I guess my question is, do you think that you talk about how before you can get power and organize, there has to be this widespread feeling. I mean, do you think that at the least the coronavirus is, you know, I think waking up maybe uh, all these college athletes to the fact that, wait a minute, we're going to go and take on all this risk and, uh, you know, and, and we're not going to get paid any of the TV revenue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, listen, you know, I'm a college rights advocate. I, I right. want these kids to, to these young people to succeed. But 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 just because I want them to succeed, I think one of the reasons they have not succeeded is because there's been too much talk and too little practicality and too little organization. And mm-hmm. you're you're up against moneyed interests. So you know, college sports is a twelve to fourteen billion dollar enterprise. Um, you're, that's big money, and that's that's annually across all college sports. Um, obviously the majority of that's in football and basketball, but you know, you want to fight a, a, an entertainment uh, behemoth like that as a group of unorganized young people, um, who are trying to, you know, get through life. That's a big, big thing. And, and so, you know, when, when they, they, they come out, they want to change the world rather than they just want to get paid. There, there's only one you know, right that matters to to college um, football players and basketball players, and it's getting paid. Right. If you get paid, you get everything else. 
So once you're an employee and you get paid, you obviously, you you get workman's comp. Uh, Now they're paying workman's comp premiums. So now they have to care about safety standards. Um, now the right. state is going to come in and look at how how safe their facility is. And you're in the training room. Are you going to get staff infections? Right. Uh, like so, I'm in Cleveland. A couple of years back, the Cleveland Browns got in trouble for having massive staff infections in their training rooms. So the, these things happen on the back end. The safety stuff happens on the back end once you have employee status. And uh, college football players and basketball players are not considered employees right now. Um, and as you may know, the, the way that Division One <clears throat> is structured uh, in the 70s, the NSA adopted a, a, a business model for Division One, and that's when they decided that D1 would be self-sustaining. Um, and that's why D1 is run off books as kind of a separate entity. The athletic departments are separate, and uh, you know Division Two and Division Three. Are not self-sustaining. Are not meant to be. And and when you get to D3, you're really at well, what most people think of as amateur sports. D2 is kind of a, a, a D2 doesn't even know what it is. Um, but but once you're in D1, you know you got the Power Five who are earning the majority of the money. So all the football money in D1, 75% of it is in the Power Five. So yeah. even when you drop down to the second half of FBS, the Group of Five. They only bring in another 10 percent, so there, there, there's no comparison between the Power Five, those 65 universities, and everybody else. The money is so concentrated, and uh, on all these Power Five campuses, you've got maybe, maybe 2.4 percent black male population on campus, and you have 55 to, to 80 percent, depending on football versus basketball uh, players. And the, and the concentration of black players goes up as, as you go from, from third string to second string to starters. Right. So, um, you, uh, and, and they never want to talk about those things. But, you know, when you talk about racial justice, uh, if, if they paid black, well, if they paid uh, Power Five football and basketball players, you would see 1,000 to 1,500 new black millionaires every year. And imagine what a dynamic change that would make uh, to their communities, to themselves, to, to everybody. And, and think, you know, and think also that uh, over a 40-year a, a work life, the, the average income for a middle-class uh, worker is two million over a lifetime, fifty thousand a year by 40 years. So, if, if you paid a football or basketball player. Um, who's not going to get drafted. So they're good, but they're not good enough to get drafted. And you pay them 500000 a year, which is, a, which is plus or minus what they're entitled to. They're, they're going to earn their lifetime earnings in four years. Mm. So you, you dramatically change. You know, the, the, the black middle class that was stomped out by uh, yeah. Woodrow Wilson and people like him in the, at the turn of the last century, you, you could you could reinvent, reinvigorate, recreate uh, a, a whole social class that has money, and and the reality is money is what talks. Money is what changes things. Um, certainly, other factors matter, but the most important thing is economic freedom, and that's what these players are, are deprived of. 
that's such a that's such a great point that I've never I've never thought of it that way. Um, that's that's so right. Um, and so in your mind, Rick, I mean, what are I think your points about how difficult it would be to get some sort of union is you know very profound and and very correct. I mean, you mentioned if there's a twenty five percent turnover at least every year, it's so hard. So what are some ways that you think you know college football players, basketball players can achieve that goal of of getting paid, what would be a roadmap in your mind? Well, <clears throat> the, the the panacea was supposed to be the O'Bannon versus NCAA case. Right. And there was a number of changes in plaintiff's counsel in that case, and the strategies changed, and I was involved in some consulting on that case. But the, the, the idea was, was that the, the, the ill-gotten gains uh, – by the universities would be given back to the players, and <clears throat> the um, in, in the O'Bannon opinion, um, the judge basically wrote that the universities and the conferences sell uh, rights that they don't have to the networks, and and what they do is they convert, which is a civil form, is, a, is the civil remedy for theft is conversion. They convert the the players' name, image, and likenesses, sell it to the the broadcast networks, and that's the majority of the revenue that comes in. And it's a hundred, it's almost a hundred percent of the revenue to the conferences, um, and the conferences, um, you know, are the conduits for that back to the to the uh, uh, the individual teams. And on a team level, you know, seat licenses, concessions, those kind of things. Um, you know, it might be 20 to 30 percent of their their revenue might be that, but at the conference level, the revenue is all broadcast revenue, and so <clears throat> the claim was was uh, for unjust enrichment to get those monies back, and uh, when the class certification was granted on um, on membership but denied on damages, the class action plaintiffs' lawyers dropped their damage claim. So in the Bannon case, that was all about getting the money for the players. They dropped their damage claim because they could only try that case for the 30 named plaintiffs. And that was the single biggest error that's happened in the last 20 years of, of college athlete rights. It, 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 and that case was precedent for the, the most recent one, the Alston case. But once, once they dropped that claim, there went any real leverage and whether the judge was right or wrong on, on how she determined uh, which classes she would grant standing to, uh, which is a legal technicality and probably not interesting to people listening to this, but it, <laughs> it, it, it matters in the big thing of, of what are you going to get. And when the plaintiff's lawyers weren't going to get a billion dollars, they were going to get money for 30 players. But then you, if, as long as you win against one of them, then you, then you leverage that. You know, you, you, you file claims on behalf of 5,000 players. I mean, there's other ways to do it. They just wanted the quick buck, and they got paid a lot of money in legal fees, and the players got squat, right? you know, next to squat. Um, so the, 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 that's a long answer to your short question, which is yeah. how, how do you change this? What yeah. was supposed to change it was the O'Bannon case. Um right. And, uh, and, and O'Bannon was completely fucked up. Excuse my language. Um, and <laughs> we can do uh, that. It's a podcast. <laughs> it, it, it was completely screwed up. 
and that and because uh, all the cases uh, against the NCA have been consolidated in front of uh, Judge Claudia Wilkin out in uh, the Oakland District Court for uh, Federal District Court in California. She's the one handling all these cases. So, so now you've got this precedent, which is controlling on her, um, because the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals heard the case and affirmed in part, reversed in part, and what they decided uh, became the law. And that's what's, what she has to follow. So the, the ability to use a litigation angle to, um, to, to help these uh, young men um, evaporated to some degree. And then you get the Alston case where you've got a products liability plaintiff's lawyer uh, handling the case along with a blue chip uh, uh, um, Wall Street lawyer. Um, everybody's white. In both these cases, all the lawyers, the judge, everybody's white. Um, you got a few black plaintiff representatives, but that's about it. All the expert witnesses, or almost all of them are white. It's, it's a white room. And I asked the, the plaintiff's lawyer in the Austin case, I said, why didn't you make the racial argument? He goes, well, how, how would I show there was a racial angle uh, when they treat everybody differently? And I said, disparate impact analysis? <laughs> <laughs> Like second year of law school, yeah. Um, it's how you it's how you prove racial intent when the, when the what the action is is racially neutral on its face, but it has a disparate impact. So if if you're not paying everybody, but the, but uh, you've only got 2.4 percent black males on campus and they're 55 percent of the football team, who are you in fact not paying? You're not playing. You're not paying black people. Uh, yeah. That's disparate impact. And and yeah. He actually, I mean, this is a guy who earns a fortune every year, is nationally known, super smart, but they didn't have anybody in either the O'Bannon case or the Alston case, they didn't have somebody like me saying, what the fuck? <laughs> Do you know how this works? And in, 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 in the O'Bannon case, they used the, the term student athlete constantly, and they did so less so in the Alston case. But the term student athlete is an NSA propaganda term that was invented in the 50s to deny um, workman's comp benefits mm. to uh, football players. So if, if you're arguing for the plaintiffs and you want them to have employee status, you don't call them student athletes. You call them college athletes. Uh, you know, right. that's just a for instance. But the, 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 these massive lawsuits were corralled by people who are very good at earning lots of legal fees for themselves. They, <laughs> there are very few people who understand college athletics politically at the NCAA level. And that, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the best at it, but I'm, I, I'm one of the few people that really understands it and did a lot of the research related to it. You know, I'm, I was the first one to depose all their vice presidents. I mean, yeah. nobody had ever gotten that far. I mean, it was astonishing some of the stuff I learned. But uh, I, my viewpoint is, is is so different than most people's because I've seen I've, I've seen the back door. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's so that that's so correct, and uh, and really framing it. I mean, you're the first. I mean, as like a racial justice issue, I think is a way that is, is just really resonates deeply with me. Um, 
I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to ask you about kind of your predictions about this upcoming fall. We've had, of course, UConn canceling its football season, Division Two and Division Three schools canceling their fall championships. Ivy League canceled fall sports uh, a while ago. Um, of course, though, I mean, you know, UConn has a struggling football program. They were thirteen million dollars in debt last year. I read, and they don't even have a conference right now. Division Two, II, Division Three, obviously not revenue generating conferences. So, what do you think this looks like for? the five major conferences, if you were to project or predict, what do you think happens with those seasons? Do we have college football this fall? Well, uh, let me first tell you, I I care about the politics of all this stuff, but I don't watch sports on TV. (laughs) It makes you the best guy to to be an arbiter on all this then. (laughs) Well, but I, you know, whether we have college football or not, uh, from an entertainment value, doesn't matter to me. Um, And, you know, I sent you an an article that was in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week by their economic writer. And, you know, three times as many kids have died of the flu this year than COVID. But people are scared of COVID. Um, There there are two main things going on with COVID uh, that distort any ability to make predictions. Number one, we have mass hysteria that's fueled by the the media. Uh, I I can't remember the last story that the media carried every single day for this long. Um, It it just never stops because people are terrified of it and there's no answers. And there's no answers because we don't have a national health department. So health and human services has been shown to be, you know, basically a boondoggle. It's, you know, that's where CDC is. That's where NIH is. Um, that's where the, the vaccine agency is and a whole lot of other uh, human service agencies that have gigantic budgets. So like that, you know, Anthony Fauci's budget is $5.8 billion a year just for infectious diseases and allergies. So, I mean, and, and all his agency does is funnel money into universities and, uh, and pharmaceutical research. And all CDC does is funnel information up from the 50 state health departments and backwards to the 50 state health departments. But we don't have anybody that says, hey, uh, I'm the health director for the country. Here's how we're going to deploy, you know, assets or or tests or whatever. And uh, there's another guy talking about how how do you actually do this? And and in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, $6 billion to build out the testing facilities needed, meaning the laboratories. $6 $6 billion to build that out to test everybody in this country once a week. They've already spent $3 trillion on this, and they're, they're arguing about whether it should be one or three additional trillion right. dollars. $6 billion is spit. The fact that, we, that, that, that not only have we not built out testing capability, um, and, and there's, nobody, there's nobody situated to to be in charge of that because the the, the health departments were federal were, were treated as a federal system, so uh, you know just like we got 50 states, we got 50 state health departments, and they can all do their own thing. But if you got a national pandemic, it's not set up to manage that, and they're and they're not budgeted to, to manage this. And then you look at how much we're spending. I mean the the, the crazy numbers. So so if you want to uh, you know uh, Medicaid for all or you wanted reparations, or you want, you know, whatever was on your wish list, it's gone. We just flushed it down the toilet with these COVID payments, 
and the COVID payments haven't increased our, our GDP. There, it's just money literally flushed down the toilet. And it, it, it's astonishing to me that, that we don't have national testing and contact tracing. Taiwan yeah. has 25 million people. They did it in January. It works. So did South Korea. It works. Um, South Korea has got 50 million people. Now, we got right. 330 million. Obviously, we're larger, but we have the largest economy by like a factor of a zillion. So, you know, our, our, our GDP is like 21, 22 trillion. And then number two is China at, at like 12 to 15. And then it drops down to like seven for Japan. I mean, when you look at world economies, nobody compares to us. We have the money to, we had the money to do it in January, February, March, April, May, June, July. It's now August. Okay. So we're half a year late. We still have the money. We can, within a month's time period, build out national testing capability. It, it can be done. It's called a war effort. You, you mobilize the Pentagon. You get it done. It gets done. It, it's doable. We just don't have any leadership. And, right. you know, and, and you see that in so many different areas. Um, it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, but it has real consequences. So within this instability, you know, where, where there, there is no risk-based argument not to have schools open and not to have sports um, compared to the flu. But as I said, people are scared of COVID. It's unknown. And, we, and more than anything else, I think people are scared to death that we don't have any national leadership on this issue. So yeah. people are making irrational decisions Plus, then you factor in, you know, the, the, the lightning rod, because basketball season hasn't started. The lightning rod is football. And, uh, and, and football, you know, has uh, these very highly paid coaches and, and highly paid uh, assistant coaches. And they're all overpaid by about 75% because they have a zero labor cost. So, you know, people wonder, like, why, why, why do these coaches earn more than professional coaches? I mean, you know, Clemson coach earns more than the Cleveland Browns coach. Um, why does that happen? Well, because NFL pays over half their revenue to the players and college pays nothing. So you have all this excess money. Where do you think it goes? You know, why do you have million dollar strength coaches in college? I mean, these things should never happen, but they did because the money's got to go somewhere and you got a bunch of greedy people. So, you know, a lot of the, the, you know, why are you making the kids play is, is more of a, you know, look at the economic uh, differential. And, you know, if this coach is going to earn five to $10 million, uh, which is guaranteed, he's going to earn it anyway. Um, why, you know, why should these people go out and play when they're not getting paid? And, you know, the better question is, you know, the, 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 the you know, However many kids are, are you know, really into um, the United uh, movement right now, uh, you know, the, the concept to me is, is what happens when these kids have injuries? So, so for instance, you know, while they're at a, at a, at a, a Power 5 football program, they're going to get um, some level of medical care. But as soon as they're off the team, uh, you know, let's say they've got a problem with their ankle that needs surgery five years from now, or they get, you know, shoulder problems or whatever. 
there's because they don't have workman's comp, they don't there's no insurance that follows them to pay for their injuries. And there's no retraining if they get injured. Um, and most of them, are, you know, well, not most, but a, a great percentage of them get injured. And, you know, other than uh, University of Maryland, you know, a couple schools have talked about having lifetime education where you can come back at any time and finish your college degree. But, you know, the, the graduation rates for these players is through the through the basement and most of them never come back. And even with University of Maryland, you go try to find that benefit on their Web page. You're going to look <laughs> for a long time. Um, so so I, I I think the media has given the young people the, the glimpse of, hey, no one's taking care of us. They haven't really like thought this through to say, what are we really not being taken care of? Is it is it is it we're going to be exposed to other people? Um, if that's true, why are they going on spring break? Um, <laughs> and you saw the pictures from that. But uh, and, and and you know more importantly though, what actually happens to an 18-year-old person who is healthy who gets COVID? And you won't see one article in any national paper telling us because they don't want you to know that it's not a big deal. It's a very big deal if you have a health issue or if you're over 80. Um, and if obviously people over 80 typically have health issues. But if, if people understood that you can get this, recover from it, and by and large, you're going to be fine, and it's not that big a deal. It's not that it's not significant. Because the flu is significant. The flu is our eighth largest killer of people in this country. So uh, COVID this year, if you believe the numbers, would be fifth or sixth. And uh, so more dangerous than the flu this year, if you believe the numbers. But 75% of the deaths are, are old people, whereas the flu attacks young and old people. So if you were actually concerned about football players, you should be more concerned about containing the flu than about COVID at that age group, but people don't get this. And, and uh, you know, so, uh, it, but you know, that's what our media does. They, they, they focus on the, the catastrophe. They agitate people up. If you can get, you know, uh, people upset about football um, and then, you know, think about all the guys who want to watch their Saturday football, then you get them all riled up. You know, that's why it's in the paper every day. Um, but if, if you look at real data, the data says a whole lot of stuff different. Um, so I, I think within, I kind of call it a, a cacophony of, of information and inconsistencies. Right. And, and I think the cacophony works to the advantage of the organized people. And the organized people here are the Power 5 football programs. I think yep. it works. It allows them, you know, they have lobbyists. They have public relations firms. They have communications departments. They have everybody's email address and and text uh, you know uh, cell numbers on the team and and you know probably for the whole damn campus. And they can you know just push out their propaganda all day long. What, what do the players do other than being interviewed periodically by the press? That's it. They have no direct ability and they have no funding. Uh, to to dramatically influence the national debate on these things, and then you look yeah. at you know, um, you know the unions, and you know, my position is you know it's very hard to unionize. Uh, it'd be easier 
to unionize basketball than football because it's smaller and it's and it's higher black concentration. Um, you've only got you know under under a thousand uh, Power Five basketball players, and if the NB, NBPA wanted to come in and organize them, they could organize them overnight. There's 13 players a team. You bring yeah. in you know one NBA superstar, put them at each of those 65 teams. Those those players all walk off the next day. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 certainly. I, I mean, I, I could do this all day, so I, I will let you go. But I mean, I, I think you know a word I have for a lot of the media coverage of COVID is panic porn. I mean, that that really is kind of what it is, or disaster porn, if you will, as well. And as you know, you get everyone into hysteria. It gets clicks. It gets views. I think that's a lot of it. And I mean, we suffered all of the. Um, economic devastation of a lockdown and gains none of the benefits. I mean, we were supposed to, that was supposed to give us time to set up the national contact tracing and testing. And as you said, we never did. It's just embarrassing all around, Rick. It, it really is crazy times. Yeah. Well, it's nice talking to you. I, I appreciate you having me on and um, always happy to speak with you. Yes, that is again, uh, Rick Johnson and Rick, how can the people follow you on Twitter as well? Uh, at Piranha RGJ. Awesome. All right, Rick. Thanks for coming on the show. Much appreciated. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. So thank you again for tuning in to another edition of the Sports Geeky Podcast. It is always a pleasure to keep delivering these shows to you each and every week here as part of the Outsports family. And again, thanks go out to our guest this week, Richard uh, Gibbs Johnson, or Rick. Rick, we're good friends. Rick, for joining me on the show. Uh, I kind of just sat back and listened because uh, he was certainly uh, spouting a lot of knowledge, and it was uh, a good conversation. Kind of what a podcast is all about. Those kind of interviews are uh, are what work well in the podcast space, so we're happy to provide that to you. Uh, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.